Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue in our series in the second half of American history. As I indicated in the 39th podcast, where I discussed the Korean War and the Red Scare, that the 40th podcast in my U.S. History 2 series is in, in some cases a standalone or a break from the chronological discussion, survey discussion that I'm being ongoing here in my series, podcast series on American history. Rather, this podcast is an attempt to explain the various acronyms and terms that any reader of American history, from the basic survey textbook all the way to very specific books on American military, foreign, and even domestic policy, will come across terms and acronyms related to the Cold War. Because to talk about American history anywhere from 1945 to 1991 and never mention the ongoing Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union leaves out a major component of what drove American society. So this information that I'm sharing in this podcast, again, is a way to understand going forward all those acronyms and terms that I will be discussing on occasion all the way through to the end of this podcast series. Again, though, however, when I mention IRBM, for example, let's say in podcast number 45, I will certainly give a quick reminder of what that is. But a further explanation, I would redirect you to this podcast, this one here, number 40. So looking at the nuclear weapon or nuclear weapons technology and the Cold War, the first term that I'd like to throw out there is the overall umbrella term called geopolitical stability. Why and how do Americans feel safe compared to our neighbors to the south of us, our neighbors to the north of us in the world's longest political boundary, the United States and Canada, versus our neighbors east of us way across the Pacific Ocean and Asia, or to the west of us over the, sorry, had that flipped around, the neighbors to the west of us over the Pacific Ocean, Asia, or our neighbors over the Atlantic Ocean to the east, that being Europe. Geopolitical stability as that $25 academic term implies, breaking down geo meaning earth, political meaning government entities. How do we aim for stability? A sense of well-being, even though we understand that danger always lurks or can lurk around the corner with an angry enemy. From George Washington's day all the way until the 20th century, those massive moats called oceans gave Americans a sense of protection and stability. With largely good relations with our neighbors to the north, Canada, 
as well as to the South, despite, of course, that chapter known as the Mexican-American War, America has generally had good relations with our neighbors to the North and South. Therefore, any potential enemies over in Asia or in Europe, they had to cross those expansive ocean waters to get to us. But as we discussed in those podcast series, both in American History 2 and World History 2, in the 21st century, 20th century, those massive moats are becoming a lot smaller with the advent of air travel and submarine technology. So moving forward, after by 1945, America has already witnessed two of the most destructive battles in human history. And that war, that second war has ended with the most destructive weapon ever devised by humankind to that date. How do we achieve this term geopolitical stability well it can happen in essentially one of three ways the first which any one country would be the most comfortable with providing they were the one is what we call unipolar stability the idea that there is one country in the world that is immensely more militarily powerful than any of its countries around if not even worldwide but the fact of the matter is, is that inherently, as realists like Jack, Dr. John J. Mearsheimer out of the University of Chicago discusses in several uh, different his books, one of the most poignant, that being the his latest book that I had read up until that time, which is The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, unipolar polar stability is inherently unstable because the race will be on to bring that superpower down to its knees with more equilibrium to its neighbors around them. The second idea is bipolar stability, where there will be two immensely powerful countries that will be equal to one another, but far surpassing the military technology and capability of any other country on the planet. That's where America found itself the moment the Soviet Union detonated its first nuclear weapon. After World War One, excuse me, after World War II, America clearly was in unipolar status. We had possessed solely the most destructive weapons ever devised in, hum in the history of the human race. And that sadly then propelled the Soviet Union and other countries to try to pursue their own nuclear weapons. When the Soviet Union detonated its first nuclear bomb, followed thereafter by China. The United States became moved into a bipolar status because even though China would eventually have the bomb, it would not have the economic capacity of the United States or the Soviet Union. So throughout the Cold War, from 1945 until Christmas Day 1991, when the Cold War officially came to an end with the demise of the Soviet Union, America is in a bipolar stable atmosphere. The last part is multipolar stability, where there is no one country more powerful than any other. There isn't even two, rather there is several. In the history of the human race, more often than not, the world found itself in a multipolar status. But again, that did not, of course, as we know, ever prevent war. 
As I mentioned in earlier podcast, after the when I first introduced the Manhattan Project moving forward, I could not stress enough the difference between atomic and thermonuclear, the, the advent of nuclear weapons, and how drastically different they were than any other weapon devised in the history of the human race. In this podcast series, and the reason I wanted it a standalone, is because I want to demonstrate just how vastly more powerful these weapons are and the best way in the ones that i the way i cover it in my classes at cuyahoga community college and before at moraine valley community college in the southwest suburbs of chicago is actually the most succinctly stated in a book called the conduct of war an introduction to modern warfare by samuel b Payne Jr. And Payne, his last name, P-A-Y-N-E. And what I'm going to do now is just to stress how much more powerful nuclear weapons are by reading in his from his very beginning of his book on page five from the chapter A Glance into the Abyss is a description of a detonation of a simple one megaton nuclear warhead at the surface of the earth and at the center of a major city. So at the bottom of page five, I'm going to then explain the five different phases of nuclear weapons blast. The first phase is an initial shock blast, the second thermal flash, three, direct radiation, four, fallout, five, electromagnetic pulse. So I begin reading at the bottom of page five. At the instant the explosion occurs, the temperature at its center rises to several tens of millions of degrees Fahrenheit, hotter than the interior of the sun. A fireball of extremely hot luminescent gas forms and begins to rise. As it rises, it spreads out at the top and trails behind it an ascending column of radioactive dust, thus forming the mushroom-shaped cloud of our nightmares. The fireball from a one megaton nuclear blast would appear to an observer 50 miles away to be many more times brilliant than the sun at noon. The blast from the detonation expands outward from its center with a tremendous force and for many miles. It is followed by winds as high as 700 miles an hour from the center of the explosion, diminishing to merely hurricane force winds 5 to 10 miles out. These winds blow outward from the center and then after a moment of death-like stillness are succeeded by strong winds blowing inwards towards the center as air is sucked in by the rising fireball. At ground zero, the point where the war had exploded, there would be a deep crater on the surface of the earth. In dry soil, the crater left from a one megaton blast would be about a thousand feet in diameter and 200 feet deep, a hole wide enough and nearly deep enough to bury the United States Capitol building in. All around the crater, would be a ring of soil and debris twice as high as the crater itself flung out by the explosion. The blast wave would demolish every human-made structure within a mile of the crater except for bridge abutments 
and building foundations. Further out, it would leave the shells of reinforced concrete buildings standing, but with their interiors completely blown out. Virtually everybody less than two miles from ground zero would be killed by the blast and its secondary effects, regardless of anything else inflicted on them by the explosion. They would be crushed under falling debris, blown out of windows of multi-story buildings or flung against solid objects at 60 miles an hour or have their lungs ruptured. The blast wave would demolish ordinary single family homes three miles from ground zero and severely damage stronger buildings as well. It would destroy most vehicles at, a, at that distance and leave the streets clogged with debris. It would tip over mobile homes five miles from ground zero and break windows at a distance of seven miles. The counterpart of the blast wave above the surface of the earth would be the shock wave below its surface, shaking the earth as much as an earthquake does. Heavy underground structures such as subway tunnels are very resistant to shock damage, but whether people in them would survive a nearby nuclear explosion is another question. Presumably, if their access to the surface is blocked by debris, they would die. It is possible a very heavy shock indeed would obliterate their lungs. The underground silos for the United States Minutemen ICBMs are designed to withstand enormous overpressure of 2,000 PSI, pounds per square inch, and could possibly survive a one megaton burst a thousand feet away. Five PSI overpressure will demolish an ordinary brick building. All of the destruction that I had just read was caused by half, just half, of the energy released in the explosion. Another 35% of its energy would be released in the form of light and heat. We are now on to the thermal flash. This is a blinding, intense burst of light and heat from the fireball lasting for about 10 seconds. The light given off by the explosion is so intense that an ordinary it temporarily blinds people, even if they are not looking towards it. They may be flash blinded as far as 13 miles away on a clear day or 53 miles at night. After several minutes, the victim recovers completely. But if he is driving a car or flying on an airplane at the time, he is almost certain to crash. A person unlikely, un, excuse me, a person unlucky enough to be looking in the direction of the explosion when it occurred would suffer severe and permanent burns of the retina. The thermal flash is strong enough to inflict severe burns on people caught out in the open several miles away. The amount of damage the flash does depends on whether at the time of the explosion, the time of day, time of the year and other factors. Moisture in the air absorbs thermal radiation, so there would be less damage done on an overcast, drizzly day than on a clear day. Fewer people would be outside and thus vulnerable to the thermal flash at night than during the day. People would be wearing people would be wearing more clothing and would be better protected during the winter, for example, than during the summer. Clothing provides some but not complete protection. A photograph of one of the victims of Hiroshima bombing shows a neat checkerboard pattern of burns on her skin corresponding to the dark areas of the kimono that she was wearing. Thick, light-colored clothing provides more protection than thin, dark-colored clothing. The possible variations on all of these factors leads to great uncertainty about the death toll from the thermal flash of a nuclear explosion. 
The thermal flash is likely to cause widespread fires in the ruins of, bomb, of a bomb city and in the area around it. The heat from a one megaton burst is sufficient to set newspapers on fire eight to 10 miles away. Many fires would be started by the blast wave. Fuel tanks and fuel lines would be ruptured, wood stoves, stoves overturned, high voltage transmission lines blown down. Still another effect of the nuclear wave of explosion is the direct radi nuclear radiation emitted from the center of the explosion during the first second after the blast occurs. This accounts for about 5% of the energy released in the explosion. The direct radiation given off does not kill very many people simply because it has a comparatively short range. Almost everybody close enough feels its effect would have already been killed by the blast or thermal flash. In a detonation of a very small nuclear weapon, one kiloton or less, the lethal effects of the direct radiation reach further than those of the blast and the thermal flash and so kill people whom the blast and the thermal flash might have spared. A nuclear explosion can kill by its blast, its thermal flash, its direct radiation, and also, perhaps months or years after it goes off, by the fourth stage of a nuclear detonation, the radioactive fallout. Radioactive fallout accounts for about 10% of the energy released in a nuclear explosion, but far more than the 10% of its casualties. In a surface burst, the explosion sucks up great quantities of microscopic debris from the crater and into the mushroom cloud. This debris and the remnants of the bomb itself become heavily radioactive as a result of the nuclear reactions which occur within the fireball. They constitute the radioactive fallout, a material harmful and frequently lethal to all life in the vicinity. Some of these particles, those in the stem of the mushroom, fall very soon back to the earth again and in the immediate vicinity of the explosion and harm only those who are already dead from its effects. A small amount of the material at the top of the mushroom cloud is carried into the stratosphere and blown all around the globe not to fall to earth again until months or even years later. Some of the fallout from nuclear weapons tests carried out during the 1950s is still up in the stratosphere. Fortunately, the longest lived radioactive materials are less virulent. So the material falling to earth now from the 1950s has lost almost all of its lethality. Most of the radioactive material in the mushroom cloud is picked up by local winds in the troposphere drifts away and falls to earth again within several days over a long plume-shaped area extending downwind of ground zero. A one megaton burst, assuming a wind speed of 15 miles an hour, fallout heavy enough to cause significant harm to human beings would be distributed as far as 250 miles from the site of the explosion. Stronger winds would spread the fallout over a larger area, but less of, of it in each square mile affected. Finally, the fifth stage, the electromagnetic pulse, was not clearly recognized until about 1960, also known as the EMP. The failure to recognize this phenomenon for 15 years after the first nuclear weapon tests suggests the disturbing, although remote possibility, 
that there are still other effects of nuclear explosions human society has yet to find out about. The electromagnetic pulse is a very large burst of energy in the form of radio waves. Radio at the same frequency as those by radio and television stations. It is powerful enough to destroy or temporarily paralyze many types of electrical equipment, particularly those attached to antennas, overhead power, or telephone lines, and other long exposed wires or other metal objects. The EMP produced by high altitude nuclear detonation can knock out computers, power grids, radio stations, radios, and telephones themselves over a very large area. It is estimated up to 200 miles. So that ends my extended description from, again, Samuel B. Payne Jr.'s book called The Conduct of War between pages 5 and page 9 of his book. While the book may be difficult to get today, I recommend it for those that really would like to know more about specifically how nuclear blasts affect human society. Because after that, Samuel Payne takes that information and then applies that to a nuclear attack specifically on an American city, which I will spare my listeners to at this time. But there is just no better way for me to try to explain the five stages of a nuclear blast any more succinctly than Samuel Payne wrote in his book. Please note in terms of the effects of nuclear weapons and international relations that conventional weapons, it was assumed, could be rendered useless. It made global security all the more intense. Geopolitical stability now would have no choice but to revolve around the nuclear players, which is what today is called the nuclear club. In terms of levels of military slash political advantages, if you can even call it that, would basically be as follows. It would The first would be strike capability. With America's attack on Japan, Japan and the rest of the world, and most specifically the Soviet Union, knew that America had possessed nuclear strike capability. What then that ascends to is first strike capability. Could a nuclear power hit another nuclear power first? Again, proven with the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What then made this all the more negatively intense was what became known as second strike capability, that the nuclear weapons of the United States would be spread throughout the United States in such a large span that the Soviet Union most likely could not knock out America without our ability to launch our own retaliatory strike if the Soviet Union launched a first strike attack. But then the Soviet Union likewise spread out its nuclear weapons throughout its country, giving it second strike capability. That's what led to, sadly, what became known as the Mutually Assured Destruction Platform, or reality. How ironic that the acronym of Mutually Assured Destruction is M-A-D, MAD. And you think I make this stuff up.
In terms of delivery systems, at first, the only way that America, or at first the Soviet Union, once it acquired nuclear weapons, to actually use those in an, an actual war would have to be only from airplanes. That's what was known as plane-launched nuclear weapons. We immediately recognized what we call jet and other technology that allowed us to now put warheads on missiles. That would then give us the ability to strike a much, much further than a plane could reach without having to refuel. That's what gave rise to the first of these acronyms called IRBMs. BM meaning ballistic missile, IR, interregional. The cutoff is roughly 3,400 miles. At first, we did not possess nuclear missiles that could go beyond 3,400 miles. But then we launched into ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missiles, which is anything over 3,400 miles, which, of course, the United States still possesses today, as does Russia and other nuclear powers. We then clearly put two technologies together, nuclear weapons and submarine technology, giving us SLBMs, which you'll also read again, even in a basic survey, American History, World History II textbook. SL, of course, meaning submarine-launched ballistic missiles. But what if a missile coming in from the United States could be knocked out? And likewise, if we could, could, we could wipe out a Soviet missile, fine until we get into the age of MIRVs, multiple independent reentry vehicles. So for every one warhead that moves into the atmosphere of our enemy, we would launch several mini warheads of those, only one of them is the actual nuclear device, the others are dummies. It would overwhelm any type of anti-missile defense system that a country could attempt to launch. And that leads us then to the final acronym in this breakout podcast or standalone podcast on nuclear weapons technology that was devised in theory or on paper in 1983 by the Reagan administration known as SDI. That's the Strategic Defense Initiative. Yes, it was dubbed by Democrats, Reagan being a Republican and backed by the Republican Party for SDI research, the Democrats toying with that using the still relatively new term Star Wars from the movies of the late 1970s, that it was nothing more than a pipe dream. But the fact of the matter is, listeners, if it was only a pipe dream, why has every Democratic president since also continued to push the technology. If it was a pipe dream, why did SDI paralyze the Soviet Union with fear? Because pipe dreams that human beings have tend to be made a reality by the American people when our minds are set to the task. The idea of SDI would eliminate the advantages of IR, IC, SLBMs, as well as making MIRVs impotent. The reason being is that before the Soviet Union's missiles could enter, even enter American airspace, 
satellite technology with the use of lasers. Remember, laser itself is an acronym, L-A-S-E-R, for light amplified emissions, light amplification emission of radiation. That laser, light amplified stimulation emission of radiation, could negate any nuclear device that any enemy could launch at the United States. It would make all of their technology absolutely useless and protect America and potentially our allies who were ever under the umbrella of protection by SDI. Yes, listeners, it is beyond still impossible to do as of the 2020s. It is like, as an analogy, somebody in the United States shooting a bullet that has the ability to go around the earth and somebody in Russia shooting a bullet that can go around the earth and getting those two bullets to match and hit head on. But with each successive presidential administration, America is getting closer. Why was this such a sticking point? In the peace talks between the Soviet Union and the United States, listen in to those podcasts, upcoming podcasts, as I cover the Reagan administration and our relationship with the Soviet Union as the 1980s wore on. So that brings us to an end again of this standalone podcast on the explanation of nuclear weapons technology and advancements. When we come back with our 41st podcast, we will get into the continue the chronological covering of the survey of American history, where we are going to get away for a while from this talk of nuclear weapons, of warfare, and we're just going to find out what was life like in the 1950s America. So thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or emails, please, or questions, please email me or any book recommendations as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week. Thank you.